Hi there, listeners. Yoel here. So on today's episode, we have an interview with Sarah Hyder. She's the co-founder and executive director of the group Ex-Muslims of North America. I think this is a really interesting discussion. One thing we don't talk about in this episode, though, is the recent terror attacks in New Zealand. And the reason for that is simple. We recorded this episode in early March before those attacks had happened. So with that, here's the episode. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, remotely from Bali, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Enslicht. Mickey, how you doing? I'm uh, doing pretty well. I, uh, it's strange for me to contemplate drinking a beer. It's uh, 9 a.m. for me. And uh, as you know, perhaps some people think drinking for me at 9 a.m. is a normal thing. It is not. Uh, so uh, I look forward to the experience. I trust you'll make any sacrifices necessary. Anything for our listeners, Yoel. You know that. That's right. So we have a special guest joining us today, don't we? We do. Uh, super excited to have none other than uh, Sarah Heider uh, visiting us, and uh, we'll be talking to her for the next uh, little bit. Uh, Sarah is a Pakistani-American political activist and speaker. Um, in 2013, along with Mohammed Syed, she founded a group called the Ex-Muslims of North America, or EXMNA for short. Uh, the EXMNA uh, is an organization and online community which advocates for the acceptance of religious dissent, promotes secular values, and aims to reduce discrimination faced by those who leave Islam. Uh, Sarah is currently the executive director of EXMNA. Uh, Sarah is also quite active on Twitter, and that's actually where uh, I first uh, got to uh, be aware of her and her online presence. And as someone who is active myself, as our listeners know, um, and someone who has struggled with tone, I often get up on my soapbox, and uh, uh, I am often mean, and um, I'm an asshole occasionally. Um, but I found that Sarah is like the farthest from this. Um, she often opines about controversial topics, uh, but she does so in an even-handed, nuanced and above all, really thoughtful way, deliberate and thoughtful way. Um, I find her presence on Twitter, um, uh, I find her presence really a role model on Twitter, someone who I aspire to be like in terms of the way she handles different topics uh, uh, with, with aplomb, with dignity, but again, not, not scared to uh, talk about controversial things. So uh, I'm a real admirer of her. So uh, welcome to the show, Sarah. Uh, thank you. Thank you both for having me. Yeah, we're uh, we're excited to talk to you. But, you know, a as much as we want to talk to you, and we're going to talk to you for, for, for quite a bit, uh, I want to talk to Yoel a little bit. Yoel, how's it going? It's been, what, uh, a month since we haven't seen each other? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's been a month. Um, yeah, no, it's Toronto is still a frozen shithole, you know. Um, and you look real tan, man. Yeah, you know, the, the, the sunshine is agreeing with me. Uh, yeah, it's been, it's, 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 it's I'm not unhappy to be here in this weather. Uh, Bali is an extraordinary place. The um, the people here, my God, they're so uh, so kind. Uh, the culture is so gentle. Um, and today is actually a really special day. Uh, you, should, you both should be wishing me happy Balinese New Year. Uh, so it's the eve of Balinese New Year, um, and I'm really looking forward to it because uh, tonight there's going to be, uh, I guess, a bunch of parades. Uh, Balinese New Year is called Nyepi, by the way. Uh, it's going to be a, a parade in the center of town. I'm I'm residing currently in Ubud, which is um, kind of considered an artistic uh, center in Bali. And uh, so I'll be going to the, the center of town tonight. And there's going to be these uh, processions um, where uh, Balinese people will be carrying what they call ogo-ogos. These are these big papier-mâché monsters and demons that they have taken about the past month to create, done in a very artful fashion. Um, and these demons will represent demons and monsters. Uh, and at the end of this procession of these ogo-ogos, they'll burn them. And part of Balinese New Year is to, um, well, to kind of rid themselves of demons. Uh, and uh, after the, the parade tonight, tomorrow we'll be having apparently a remarkable happening, which I'm kind of excited, excited to witness, it's a day of silence. The entire island kind of 
goes into their homes, no electricity, no uh, nothing, no no speaking. Uh, they're even the only people outside are the occasional um, people patrolling the streets, making sure there's no one outside. Uh, so, I mean, I guess I'll be witnessing it by just experiencing silence. It's a day of silence, and and the idea here is that uh, if people, if enough people or everyone is silent, the demons will uh, will uh, think there's no one on the island and will leave. Um, so, as you can see, you know, Bali is a very uh, religious uh, place. Uh, so Hindu mostly, but also kind of a combination of uh, animistic uh, traditions uh, that predate Hinduism. So really, really interesting, unique culture here. So pretty cool. Wow, that sounds amazing. Um, I wish I could get it together to be happy for you, but the truth is I just resent you more with every day. More than now that I see how tan you are and you're growing out your sabbatical beard and it's just like I'm filled with impotent rage, actually. <laughs> Well, well, you know, I wonder if you'll feel, you know, so last night I was attacked by dogs. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> you are, that does make me feel better. <laughs> yeah. So we are, Thank we are, you. Yeah, we were coming from a restaurant and like everyone, there are dogs everywhere here. And the dogs are like, you know, uh, I like dogs. Uh, but there's, there's also a big rabies problem in Bali. I mean, that's serious. Uh, so, you know, my family and I, we all got, you know, rabies vaccinations beforehand because there's a world shortage of uh, rabies vaccination. And as we got our whole, uh, got a hand on, on some of it and, 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 and vaccinated ourselves. Anyhow, last night walking home from a restaurant, we were essentially like barred from entering a street because there were like 20 or so dogs. Um, and I was prepared. I was like, you know, okay, I got to be the master here, the... Uh, the alpha dogs. The alpha. Speak. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I was like, no way. I'm not crossing the street. You won, dogs. I'm leaving. Um, so it's, it's not all beauty and incense here. It's also occasionally being attacked by dogs. So there, there wasn't really a confrontation, though. You just fled. You know, I was, like I said, I was, I was equipped. And I had, I had a, a, an experience a number of years ago now in, uh, in Ecuador when I was traveling where I actually got bitten by a dog. So... Um, I, you know, I now know, like I got, whenever I see dogs around, I'll just pick up, instinctively pick up stones. And I know all the dog lovers are, you know, aghast now. I'll pick up stones just to threaten them, to, that I'll throw stones and they'll run away. But I was, I did that a couple of times and even threw, threw a couple of stones. I'm like, that's it. I, I, there's too many dogs here. I, my kids are with me. Forget about this. All right. So I think we've, Sarah, you've indulged us long enough. Thank you. Um, for listening to us go on. Um, so yeah, there is, there is a reason that we um, wanted to have you on the show and actually a lot of stuff that we'd like to talk about. But I'd like to start just by asking a little about you. So I'm curious um, what your background is. I know you're born in Pakistan, but um, you're now living in the U.S. So tell us Wait, a little hold, about... Hold on, Yoel. Hold on, Yoel. What, what, what? I... Did I... We, we, had, we had to drink beers here. I, I oh, shit, the beers. Uh, the, I, I, well, you got to give me a fucking clean edit here. This is going to be a disaster. <laughs> Am I just going to leave this shit in? I'm just going to leave it in. This is staying in. Okay, right. what are you drinking? What are you uh, drinking? Well, let's go around the room. So, okay, I'm uh, I'm drinking uh, a Bintang beer. This is the, the beer that's all over Bali, uh, all over Indonesia. It's um, apparently won uh, an award in 2011. Uh, let me see if I can read it. The Industry International Award. Brewing, wait, sorry, the Brewing Industry International Award. I imagine that's run by Balinese only. Um, and anyhow, it's a beer that's quite tasty. It's a, it's, it's a Pilsner, and I'm looking forward to cracking it open. Very nice. Um, I have a Corona with lime. I'm Our listeners can't see, but I'm holding it up to the screen here. Here it is pretending it's summer. Um, and Sarah, now we can't see you. So basically you can make up whatever you like, but what are you drinking? I am drinking a Shiner Bach. Very nice. Oh, nice. That's from Texas, right? That is from Texas, just like me. Ah, right. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've had that a few times. Delicious beer. Good choice. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that was, that was actually a beautiful segue. Um, Sarah, you're from Texas. Tell us a little more about yourself. Right. So I, I was born in Pakistan, but I was raised in Texas. And I say, by the way, just because now, now I notice this because somebody pointed it out. Nice. Now I notice it, that I pronounce Pakistan, sometimes Pakistan. And then sometimes I say Pakistan, depending on what what the person who I'm speaking to just said immediately. <laughs> um, in any case, um, so I, I was born in Pakistan, um, but I was primarily raised in Texas. So my experience of the Muslim community is largely of the Muslim community um, in the Western world, in the United States in particular. Um, so I think that's a very unique experience. And I think uh, to my, my 
journey away from faith and the what impacted me had a lot to do with my environment and um so just to to tell people a little bit about how I left because people ask I don't think it's a very interesting story um I left religion in the way a lot of people leave religion I say that it's death by a thousand cuts because it wasn't wasn't really any one thing that got me to leave religion but just it's felt like all at once within a couple of months um, when I was a teenager, all of a sudden, all these different things started coming to light that um, together, all together made it impossible for me to f- to believe in the truth of my religion in the way that I felt before. So one of those factors was um, that I started to research into the history of, of Islam. And really, the reason I did that was because I wanted to speak to my Christian friends about why Islam is such a good religion and why it's a right and true religion. So I started studying why Christianity is false and, you know, it from a historical perspective, why it can't be true, and then why Islam is true from a historical perspective. So I was looking into that. I was also um, discovering philosophy for the first time. And this was a very, um, this was just a wonderful experience for me. I loved uh, being able to speak to people about this, but I had joined the debate team and we were doing value debates. So uh, philosophy was an important part of that. So that was a new thing um, that uh, I know I know had a really serious impact on how I felt about a divine revelation telling me um, what right and wrong is. And then lastly, um, you know, my, my atheist friends, I had a few. <laughs> um, they inf- Im- impacted me too. Um, and I tell people about this because I I know that militant atheists get a really bad rap, Um, but my militant atheist friends at the time, I found it very obnoxious that they were, you know, telling me about all the, all the reasons that my religion was false and um, why everything I believed to be true was, was definitely not, it was offensive, you know, at the time, but, but in hindsight, um, the way that they, they poked at this thing, um, you know, I really, it might've taken me much longer to look into it with that kind of depth myself, because it really is, it really was something I just took for granted. Of course, my religion is true. And of course it's real. So in, in trying to defend my faith, um, against these, these, you know, attacks by, by these obnoxious militant atheists, I found that, you know, they really had some points that I couldn't, um, sufficiently answer even for myself. And so that was why I I left the faith. So how religious was your upbringing? Was it like a church on Sunday kind of thing? More than that? Less than that? (laughs) Yeah. So it's hard to describe because it's the I think the Muslim religiosity in general is not is not something that is directly uh, the kind of religiosity that most people in the West are familiar with. So I would say that for a Muslim, like from a Muslim context, um, I was definitely from a really liberal family, um, really tolerant family. Um, but it is not liberal or tolerant from a non-Muslim perspective. For example, there were um, religious restrictions on clothing. So while I wasn't forced to wear the hijab, I couldn't wear something like capris. I remember having a really big argument with my parents <laughs> when I was young. I just wanted to wear capris. I don't know why. And I wasn't allowed to do so because I was too much skin. Um and so there were restrictions like that, nothing too tight, nothing too form-fitting, um, and even heavy makeup was something that my parents were not comfortable with because that would make me appealing. So I dressed a certain way. Uh, I was not allowed to date. I was expected to go into an arranged marriage. Um, and so, you know, th- th- that, that was sort of the way that I, I lived my life. And it is probably from a, from a non-Muslim perspective, something that people might think was more conservative in practice. But from a, from a Muslim perspective, certainly, certainly very liberal. Okay. So, you, you know, you started telling us a little bit about how you uh, stopped believing and uh, became an atheist. Um, but it seems like you've gone a step further, right? So I, I think I'm an atheist. I believe you well. You're an atheist as well. Um, but, you know, you, you went a step further, and that is you started an organization for other Muslims who want to leave the faith. So before you tell us about what your organization does, uh, can you tell us why you thought there was a need for such an organization? Well, I, in what I had experienced when I left the faith, I just, I, I did the thing that I think a lot of atheists do from all kinds of backgrounds, but certainly from Muslim backgrounds, where I just assumed there was no one else like me. I ended up 
distancing myself from the community and distancing myself from people I knew who were from the same backgrounds as me because I just wasn't ready to face uh, the kind of ostracism and shunning and sometimes abuse that comes from uh, within Muslim communities to people against people who who leave the faith. Um, usually the people who are going to harm you the most um, if there's going to be a harm are are your closest friends and, and family members. Those are the people who you're going to face rejection from. Those are the people who, you know, might shun you if, and where it would actually hurt. And with family members, sometimes there's abuse. There's, um, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but um, once in a while, there'll be threats to, to take you back home, quote unquote, if you're somebody who's an immigrant. Um, and that's not that's not actually something that is so extreme, um, and not and something sadly that too many people do experience. So, what I know was necessary just based on my experience, even though I came from a liberal background, it wasn't really my lack of religiosity wasn't something that I could really talk about, and it was something that I hid and I kind of lived a double life for a very long time, um, and I resented the fact that I felt like I needed to live this way. But it was the only choice that I had because it was either do this or lose my lose my family, um, lose, you know, touch with the people that I cared most about, or, you know, bring shame upon my family based on my act, uh, my actions from the community at large. And those were just, those, those, the price was just too high to pay for even for me to be so open. But slowly I started becoming more open. Um, I met um, other ex-Muslims for the first time and I was shocked that other people could exist and that it was possible. And um, so we decided to start, you know, do, doing these informal meetups that um, uh, turned out to be so valuable for the people that were doing them. Um, people would drive eight hours away um, to come to a two hour happy hour and they would just drink a little bit and have a good time and then and then leave. And I was like, wow, there is something. This is a need. There are people who are suffering. And I recognized when I met some of the other ex-Muslims that I was that's why I make it a point to say that I was from a liberal background because the other stories I heard were just unbelievable pain, you know, pain and intolerance and, uh, you know, just abuse that, that should never, should not exist anywhere, much less in, you know, in, in the West, in relatively educated communities and families. Um, and so when, when it was clear that there was this need, we, founded the organization. And the mission of the organization, as you said, is to um, advocate for the acceptance of religious dissent and to promote secular values um, within Muslim communities and mitigate the harms of religion to the extent that we can. Um, okay. So I think you, you, you touched upon this uh, a little bit already in terms of why you started it. Uh, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, it's been it, your, your organization has been around for a while now. So what you know? What sorts of activities do you do? How do you how do you uh, help bring about your mission? Mm-hmm. Uh, we do it by in several ways. Uh, the first part is to mitigate the costs and the harms of, of apostasy as they're happening right now, which is to say, uh, try and uh, support the people who need it now. So for that, we uh, have support communities that we build all across the United States and Canada, and to do this is kind of a um, silly like in in terms of it's just it's weird to talk about it because it's it's can sound like almost paranoia but um it really is a very real security threat that some of our some of our members live in and some uh, and their reality is that some serious harm can come to them if it was found out that they were that they were ex-muslim so these communities are underground and they're not accessible to the public and um to, to join one has to sort of apply to get in um and so there's kind of a um, that screening mechanism that we have to that we have to use, and then in addition, we apply, we we grant um, emergency uh, grants and aid and shelter um, to apostates when they need it. Um, lately, we've been focusing a lot more on our outreach efforts. We really want to educate the public on what's going on and um, what they can do to change things and to normalize the idea of the apostate. Um, for the longest time, there were really just a handful of people who were ex-Muslims and publicly speaking about the fact that they just. They they didn't believe anymore. Um, we know that we are part of that change uh, to make more people public and to bring out their voices and to show that there's just so many of us out there. We had a video project called Life Beyond Faith where we profiled um, many people who had different kinds of people who had left uh, the faith 
you know, to show that really the, it, it's really not any one kind of person who leaves. They can come from all kinds of backgrounds and they can have all sorts of journeys. Um, and now we're trying to build um, education and knowledge about what is going on within Muslim communities, um, what is the status of apostates. And um, I'm working on a sociological study right now about ex-Muslims, which I'm really excited about and hopefully will be released soon. Um, so I want to push back a little bit on something you just said, which seems... It seems there's, there's some tension in, you know, your mission, but also in, um, you know, the facts on the ground. And that is like you describe this as being to some extent clandestine. I mean, it, it, there are security risks and, and, and um, some real security risks. And as a result, you have to kind of uh, be secret about it. But isn't part of the mission as well to normalize this uh, and. Uh, so in, in, in essence, don't you want more people coming out and speaking out, being public about it? And how, but how do you do that when it's also semi-secret? Oh, yeah. yeah I, I think you're, that's a good point. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what our strategy is and how, the way that we conceive of these things coming together. Um, in, in the United States, and in particular in the West, we can say uh, that we don't have a governmental restriction against um, speaking out about um, Islam or any one particular religion in particular. So we don't have that to worry about. What we do have to worry about is uh, shunning ostracism and abuse from family members and from your community. Um, the reason we think that these communities are really important um, is because it gives people who do not have any other option another family to build. And what we find that even if when people are in the closet, so to speak, and we borrow a lot of language from the gay rights um, community uh, because we find so much um, promise in their strategy and the way that they move forward. Um, but it, these communities give people a second home, a second family, so that um, if they were to come out, and if they were to open up, um, they don't lose everything. You know, they have some friends, they have some community, they have someone that they can um, still connect with and still, uh, and they know that there's a group of people um, that has their back, so to speak. So we think that these communities are step one to empowering people to open up, and um, we've seen that happen. We've seen people who have come into these communities, build these connections, and become strong and empowered because now they know that they won't lose everything you know even if it was that they're cut off from all that they know they're not completely alone so this allows them to get have a little bit of a stage to feel a little bit more powerful and enough that they that they maybe they want to be more open right so mickey and i were both struck by by something interesting about you know what you chose to name your group and I, I think maybe this comes back to the idea of community or or maybe cultural identity if you'd want to put it that way that that's the ex-muslims you know and uh, mickey you know is a proud atheist i'm uh i basically don't care uh but but we would both call ourselves Jews, right? Like I would say like, well, I'm a non-observant Jew or a secular Jew or something like that. Does that is that just an oxymoron? Like, can you be a non-observant Muslim or a secular Muslim or is that just doesn't exist? Right. I mean, to me, it is an oxymoron. It's something that, you know, I, I, I think it's important to be clear about what we call ourselves. Um, and so I personally would never um, take on a Muslim atheist or uh, secular atheist, or sorry, a um, uh, Muslim atheist or, or secular Muslim, I guess, uh, label. Um, because to me, it doesn't make sense. To me, the core of, of why anybody is a Muslim is because they believe um, in the message. Um, but why we call ourselves ex-Muslims is something more complicated than that. Because if that was the case, I would just be okay with the label atheist. Um, we call ourselves ex-Muslims in part, uh, in large part, I would say, um, because um, of the apostasy stigma and the criminalization of apostasy across the world. So our name, uh, the name that we chose to give ourselves, the label that I put on myself in, the, you know, in our organization is, it's almost like a form of activism in itself in that we have a right to exist. We're asserting our right to exist. We're asserting our right um, to to advocate on behalf of the things we believe in and um, to be open and to be public and um, to not face any kind of um, extreme um, repercussions for, for our decision to leave the faith. Um, so that's why we go with specifically ex-Muslim in particular. Um, so maybe this is a good time to the next question, which again, 
I think you know get, gets a little bit uh, to, to the name. Um, so, you know, I think coming, you know, I, I think you're you're borrowing of the language um, from the gay rights, uh, you know, struggles is, is a good one. Um, and so, so I'll give you a little bit of my background. So, I grew up in a in a, a very religious Jewish home. Um, my my father still goes to synagogue every day. Uh, my mother, uh, you know, not as much, uh, you know, going to synagogue, but she's incredibly, uh, you know, uh, traditional. Um, and it took me a while to, you know, to come out to her or to come out to them. Um, and it was difficult. And actually, funnily enough, it was a silly way I did it. I joined Facebook and Facebook, uh, at one point, I don't think they do it anymore. They ask you, you know, what is your religion? And I could have left it blank, but I'm like, well, no, I'm going to call myself a Jewish atheist. And that was when I realized I was coming out to my family and to, to others. And, you know, I had conversations about it. Um, and it wasn't easy, uh, you know, especially with my mom. My mom, to this day, puts pressure on me for all various kinds of things. Um, so I guess my question is, uh, I mean, it seems difficult to, to come out as an atheist, you know, with lots of communities. Do you think there's something special about coming out as an atheist in a Muslim, uh, in, a, in a Muslim family? Is there something different about it? Uh, certainly. Um, but I, I think this is not, it's definitely something that doesn't need to be the case. It just happens to be the case at the moment. Um, I mean, we can argue about what scripture does or doesn't um, necessitate, um, what actions uh, it, it does or doesn't um, validate within the Muslim community. But I do think that that this um, current treatment of ex-Muslims can and, and will change, um, partially because of what you mentioned, um, Mickey, just a second ago about the gay rights movement, because I've been taking notes. <laughs> I've been taking notes of what they were doing and what worked. And I uh, noticed that what worked um, was coming out and was just to say, hey, I am your brother and or your father or, you know, your 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 sister. And I don't believe anymore. Um, and it's so it's so easy to demonize people you don't know. And it's so easy to, you know, read scripture that says, OK, well, you know, these guys don't don't deserve uh, the right to life and to interpret that literally when you don't know the person and you don't love the person for whom this may apply to. Um, and so we, we, I do think that once we, if we follow that playbook, that the Muslim treatment of ex-Muslims will, will shift dramatically because we do exist within Muslim communities and we are um, silent and we are in the closet, but we are everywhere. Um, and I think that I've, and I've seen it happen to some degree in my family and then in other ex-Muslim families when, when somebody has come out. Once in a while, like, it, what will happen, um, honestly, too frequently is that you'll be shunned, uh, you'll be ostracized immediately. Um, but sometimes you'll be surprised and there'll be some family members who accept you or uh, there will be an immediate really horrible thing that happens and somebody kicks you out and then five years later, seven years later, someone reaches out again and says, hey, we want to reestablish contact. Hey, we love you and let's let's try this again. Um, so I, I think that it is something that right now is very different in Muslim communities. The intolerance towards religious dissent is extreme in Muslim communities, even in the West, even in, say, the United States, where you have the most liberal Muslim community in the world, um, by really every measure. Uh, even here, it's a real um, serious issue. But I think that it is something that can change. Yeah, so I think um, for me, this brings up like a kind of a difficult feeling of like hearing you talk as an insider about the ways in which these communities are kind of unique in uh, their reaction to dissent. It, it's an uncomfortable feeling of cognitive dissonance because like as a, you know, nice liberal American, I like to think that like, look, whatever religion people have, it's cool. We're a diverse melting pot country. We can all get along. And this stuff about like Muslims being this like special, different, threatening minority. This is all this like right wing fever dream stuff, you know, this like crazy stuff that you see on like the kind of fringes of the far right. And that's BS. And you know, I guess I wonder how you talk about these issues, which I believe you are very real without giving ammunition to people who are who have bad intentions politically. Mm -hmm. Well, I, for 
a lot of ex-Muslims um, that I know personally who could be more public if they wanted to be. Um, I know that this issue in particular, the fact that they feel that, you know, maybe maybe if they say something or maybe that they just don't know how to say things in a way that wouldn't uh, feed into anti-Muslim bigotry, that that's the reason that some of them just hold back. Um, there are many, 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 many uh, very, very progressive, uh, very liberal Muslims who are in the spotlight. I would say people who are in entertainment, um, uh, who, who are in, you know, the movie industry, who are in, um, it, who are artists um, that are more well known in the Western context. And I'm not going to out anybody who I uh, personally know are not actually believers, but they just feel that out of a sense of solidarity with the Muslim community, because they are being targeted this way, they shouldn't speak out at the moment. Um, so yeah, it's a really, it's a real concern. And it's something that ex-Muslims cannot ignore and do not ignore, um, because this is our families, you know, it's not, if with many rights struggles, it's, uh, you can say that there's just this other who you don't, you can't relate to, you don't, maybe you don't know who is oppressing you sort of blindly, but with, with us, it's very, very, very intimate. And again, this is where the parallels to the gay rights movement come, um, where really some of the people that might do you most harm are the people who you love the most. Um, and so, of course, we don't want to speak in ways or in, uh, you know, act, do our, perform our activism in ways that might hurt Muslims or in, increase the chances that they might be targets of anti-Muslim bigotry. Um, having said that, um, this, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, something I think about pretty deeply. And um, I have a few points that I guess I would want to add that I think should be considered alongside, um, you know, the question of how do we balance anti-Muslim bigotry and speaking about the problems of Islam. Um, to the extent that what we want to do here is just reduce harm um, against Muslims. We should look at all the different ways that Muslims are likely to experience harm, not just um, through this one vehicle, which is through anti-Muslim bigotry. Um, because this is anti-Muslim bigotry is something visible to the outside world. It is not something contained within Muslim communities. So it's something that gets attention because everyone can see it. My activism is addressing things that most people don't see. And the harm isn't just this one harm of what's happening to apostates, but in the literally hundreds of ways in which religion and religious beliefs uh, hinder progress and the ways in which they um, uh, make prosperity, let's say, of Muslim communities and Muslim um, countries even difficult, perhaps impossible. Um, so when we're talking about harm reduction in general, I think we should think about, well, what are the harms if we do not speak about this. What are the harms if we, you know, if we don't start to address the problems of of this kind of extreme religious belief and the ways in which it interacts with Muslim communities? And it is, um, I mean, just the one last, I guess, point is that anti-Muslim bigotry is again, a very real thing and something I've experienced in the past. So, and I still experience because I'm still perceived to be Muslim. I still dress a certain way. And, you know, the, the, the most, the most common name in my organization in next Muslim North America is, uh, is Muhammad, right? It's the most common name in, in the Muslim world as well. It's the same people that we look the same. We appear to be the same. We are also the targets of anti-Muslim bigotry. But um, when, again, back to that harms argument, um, anti-Muslim bigotry is something that is experienced by the most privileged Muslims in the world. That is to say, Muslims in the West, Muslims who are socioeconomically usually better off, they're higher, they have rights in these countries and they have a level of education than Muslim around the, Muslims around the world do not. But the problems that I'm trying to address are more than just the problems of this one country, but it's really something that I think is actively um, hindering the progress and the well-being of 1.5 billion people. Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, uh, Mickey and I talk sometimes about the blind spots of, um, I guess you could say, like social justice in the in the U.S. and the, the people who advocate for it. And one thing that hasn't come up for us, but that struck me, is that it's so U.S. centric. You're right, and it's it's very frustrating to me as 
as an activist, um, because not only is it what, what you said, it, very U.S. centric, it's U.S. politics centric, too. So it's there are things that are happening within Muslim communities, little communities here internally, that if they do not serve um, an easy, um, easy to digest, I guess, a political purpose for either side, it's something that is ignored um, or thrown to the side. And yeah, it's very it's very frustrating. And um, ironically, it is the kind of like privileged, <laughs> I guess, conversation that that often um, people who are opposed to this are are accused of. Yeah. So I, I do want to get more into like the uh, politics of this, because I think it's so interesting that it cuts across kind of um, the ideological lines that we have in the U.S. Right. It's there's something there to make everybody uncomfortable, whether they're on the left or the right. Um, but I kind of feel like this might be a good spot to take a break. Mickey, what do you think? I think that's a, a good idea. I've uh, got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to reach us. So both Mickey and I are on Twitter. It's probably the easiest way to get in touch with us. Uh, the show's handle is at four beers pod. You can at mention us, DM us, etc. We'll both get that. I'm still on Twitter. It's a sad story. If you're more the email type of person, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Uh, you can find our website as always at fourbeers.fireside.fm where you can listen to our back episodes, uh, write us a note if you're so inclined. Um, and that's it. So Mickey, uh, have you changed up your beers? Or are you still drinking the same thing? I uh, know. So I finished my uh, my king can of uh, Bintang, and now I'm drinking uh, something called uh, Bali High, uh, which is they describe it as a Munich lager. And as someone who has been to Munich uh, this past summer, I beg to disagree. Uh, but it's easy drinking. It's good by the beach and the pool. So uh, I I like it. Sounds lovely. I'm uh, I found another bottle of Corona. So I'm just going to keep on with that. Yep. Um, pretending it's summer still. And Sarah, what are you up to? Well, I'm still, I'm still on my first. Um, but I did have, I did have another beer. Um, am I allowed to curse on this podcast? As much as you want. Okay. Yeah, no, <laughs> well, just, well, just, just go nuts. <laughs> this beer is, um, Flying Dogs, um, Raging Bitch. That's the name. Um, and it's I've actually, had that one. You've had that one. one. Yeah. And you know, um, I was there was another podcast that I listened to a while back and made me so so much more uh, interested in this beer in particular. There was a uh, apparently a free speech like controversy that was around this beer um, because it was showing up at um, grocery stores and then you know parents would see raging bitch and they would get upset and so I think there was this effort to ban the name or ban the beer or something <laughs> and it was covered in this podcast that I listened to and it was just fascinating. That's hilarious. I mean, like I was, you know, you asked us permission to curse and I was like, bitch, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of tame. Not even, uh, yeah, that's PG, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, I hope you get into the bitch uh, soon, Sarah. You know, we have made other, yeah, raging, but I hope, uh, you know, we have made other guests uh, chug their beer to get to number two. Uh, I won't make you do that now. <laughs> no. Okay. So, um, right. Uh, Mickey, do you want to uh, pick it up with the next question? Yes, I do. And it's actually just a, a simple follow-up uh, clarification, but I know it's kind of, maybe I'm opening a can of worms a little bit. Um, I noticed in, as we were talking, 
you kept on talking, using the term anti-Muslim prejudice um, and not using the term Islamophobia. And I know there's some controversy ab- around these, you know, the use of Islamophobia as a term. You know, for me personally, I, I've always felt it a bit to be a bit of a semantic argument. Um, but can you tell me why you, you, you chose to use anti-Muslim prejudice and not Islamophobia? Sure. Um, well, I, I do think it's 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 a very uh, real debate and not just not just semantics, at least in the context of um, my activism in particular, because consistently um, what I'm accused of is of of inflaming hatred against Muslims um, or 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 bigotry against them. But that is, of course, not only is it not, you know, uh, not what I'm doing, but it's it could never be something that I would actually want to do, because, again, these are my this. These are the closest people in my life. Um, so I think it makes my activism very, very difficult uh, because one has to to make that draw that line about what it is that criticism of ideas is and what it is to be uh, bigoted against the people. Um, it also makes um the case of change a little bit more difficult too, because my argument has always been, and you know, one of the ways that I balance the concern of anti-Muslim bigotry and uh, uh, and criticize and being able to criticize religion at the same time is to focus on the idea, to focus on Islam, the belief system, and the practices associated with it, but not not on at all Muslims, the people. Um, and I think this distinction needs to be truly crystallized to the degree that we can, um, because if those things are, are, are combined, then one, when it becomes clear that, look, there are some things about this religion in particular that are different uh, than other religions, or maybe it takes longer um, for certain practices to, to, to go away in the, in the context of this religion. Um, if, it, if, if it comes across that Muslims are, um, that the people from Muslim backgrounds are forever tied to their faith, you know, they're not people who can move away, move back in, go, you know, they, that they're agents who have a set of ideas and they can move away from that set of ideas and then maybe we can move closer to another set of ideas. If we don't uh, clarify this distinction, I think it will make, um, I, I think in the, in, in the future, it will make it even more difficult for um, anti, uh, you know, bigotry activists to make their case. So I, I guess that answer to me touches uh, a lot on kind of the politics of the, how this stuff is perceived, right? So you said, like, you yourself are accused of kind of fomenting Islamophobia. Um, and it, it strikes me that you guys are in a tough position, right? Because there's really something to dislike about what you're doing for people on the left and people on the right. So for people on the left, they worry that this is, um, well, like you said, um, stoking anti-Islamic sentiment, maybe just a cover for people who secretly harbor those beliefs. On the right, obviously, you're atheists. That's not going to play well. So can you talk a little about the reaction that you've gotten, like, from the U.S. kind of political spectrum specifically? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's um, it's one of those things that I wish wasn't a part of my activism at all it's you know it's it's frustrating as somebody who's really thinking about okay what are rights and then what is truth about uh and you know how how should we how should we engage with these religious ideas to then have to think about okay what is politically convenient and what is uh you know uh, the the political way of phrasing something it's something that i get frustrated with quite easily but it absolutely is a part of what i have to do um because of uh, you know it, i i work closely with um, other ex-religious groups, which are not easily politicized in the way that Islam is kind of this really political hot topic. And while we share, like, you know, if I'm talking to ex, you know, Hasidic Jewish um, uh, communities um, or ex-Amish or ex-Mormon communities, uh, activists. There's so much resonance. There's so much we have in common. What we don't have in common usually is that political element, um, is that extra layer that we have to think about that um, really doesn't that really doesn't apply to them in that same way. So their activism is just this pure thing of just fighting for rights directly, and ours is um, has to be distorted. I think in ways that I find um, you know uncomfortable but but necessary. Um, the you know as you said. You know, um, there's we, there are 
factions, strong strong bits of both both parties that don't really like us. And it um, with progressives, there is that concern that we might be you know, we might be increasing anti-Muslim bigotry. And there's also, I think, just a thoughtlessness um, that I, I don't think many people on the political left are thinking very deeply about what Islam is, and they might be very ignorant, and they might not even want to know, because it's so much easier, especially in our political climate today, to just pick a tribe and uh, go with it. And this kind of middle ground that we're paving and this nuance, uh, you know, this conversation that we want that we want to have, that it has... Uh, you know, that true challenges and difficult questions that will require uh, nuanced ar- uh, arguments and conversations. Um, many people don't even, they, this is something they're losing patience with, increasingly losing patience with. So um, I've found that it's been more difficult as time goes on to have conversations with people on the political left. People who I know that if we were just to talk about literally what I believe and literally the change I want to see in the world, they would agree with me. I know they would agree with me. Um, but but they just feel like now in this political climate, they can't and won't agree with me. Um, and so, you know, as time goes on, I think this is getting this is getting worse as we're getting more polarized. Um, and with the Christian sort of, well, well, I would I would say the right in general, because it is so um, so heavily Christian, um, but they don't like the atheism aspect of it. And for me, as a personal activist, um, this is. Not true of every single ex-Muslim, but it's true of vast majority of ex-Muslims that I know. We're political progressives ourselves, and the reasons why we find religion to be something that is toxic and harmful to our communities have to do with these values that we hold of, you know, equality between men and women, of you know, getting rid of these, of of getting rid of gender roles and stereotypes, of accepting um, people of different sexual orientations. All of these things are. These, this is why we have um, issues with religion, and we believe deeply in science and in, you know, in evolution. And and all these, um, uh, and all these natural, you know, th- th- we have this view of this is the way that the natural world is, and we believe that science is a way of knowing truth and of finding that out, and all of those things can lead us to trouble with with the political right as well. Right. So I'm just curious as somebody who's like had these discussions, right? This is, isn't something that I've really engaged in, but do you do you think that like your progressive people that you talk to? ever experience any like cognitive dissonance about this? Like if you're literally arguing for like theocracies, for theocracies where, you know, as a woman, you have to have your like male guardian, like sign for you to be able to leave the country Um, for countries where they literally execute gay people. Like, does that like ever bother these folks or? With the exception of, I think, the people on the extreme ends who are very comfortable with with dissonance, and I think those are those really are extreme ends um, and don't represent most people. I think the vast majority of people that I talk to you about this, and especially when I talk to them directly about it, and ex-Muslims directly talk to them and make this case known, I know that they have um, that at least some tension is is going on internally. I know this conversation makes them uncomfortable. I can tell, usually if it's a face-to-face conversation, I can tell by their body language um, what's happening, that they want to support me, but also all these things, and it sounds maybe like bigotry and all these buzzwords that, they're, that, they've, that they've heard um, that just poison that dialogue and make it very difficult for them to, to go up and, and just support me. So I, I know that there's dissonance. And I know that in some circles, there is a strong social pressure not to vocally be supportive of someone like me, um, you know, especially in, in you know, um, circles that you would say are largely made up of other progressives. Um, and I, I have these people, they reach out to me, they message me, they say, Sarah, I, I agree with you and I support you, um, but I know that I can't share this video of you in public, or I did share it on my Facebook feed, and now, you know, my best friend won't talk to me. Or, I mean, that's kind of an exaggeration, but, you know, like th- that now I'm facing such and such 
um, blowback from from my community or maybe they're suspicious and looking at me like maybe I'm a bigot um, or why did I post this in the first place kind of thing. And so I know that there is a culture of um, self-censorship that absolutely affects uh, my activism. I know that it affects the activism of a lot of other inconvenient um, kind of, you know, the, the kinds of people who are talking about difficult things. I know that this affects them. Um, and they, they, they tell me about, they share similar stories of others saying that, you know, I feel the need to self-censor and so I'm going to, but I want you to know that even though I'm not publicly saying so, that I do support you. And I feel like this, this can't last, you know, um, it is painful to be in this position. It's painful to feel this way. And I know that not just in my activism, but just in, in the culture overall, there are so many of us that are feeling the need to self-censor, the need that the need to clean up and sanitize everything we say and how we say it that I know has such an extremely um, toxic impact on our you know social relations our our discourse at large and then you know on a broader scale our trust in intellectual communities because we know they're not being honest or we're not that we know they're not saying what they want to say um, and it's just uh, I, I I worry so much about the broader effect of this kind of thing, and that's why I've now within as a consequence of my act, activism with you know criticism of of Islam, I've started becoming so much more interested in you know the psychology of why we why we self censor and when we self censor. Well, so this is a great lead in. Um, one of the reasons that Mickey was so excited to invite you on. Um, was your Twitter presence, which I, I have to confess my ignorance. I wasn't really um, aware of, like I didn't follow you until like last week. But um, apparently you do Twitter really well. And I think you should tell Mickey what your secret is, if only, you know, for his uh, mental health and well-being. <laughs> Um, well, that's really nice to hear. Um, I certainly don't feel super sane and common collected when I'm on Twitter. <laughs> um, I think that I mean, it's just so it's so fascinating what a tool it is and how the specific mechanics of what you can do on Twitter, how that interplays and how that comes to create this really insane <laughs> um, atmosphere and um, how things can get so extreme so quickly and um, there's just fires left and right and I just it's hard to uh, it's almost so extreme that it's hard to take seriously at times because it just it's like this can't be real life this can't be how we're really talking to each other and and actually in real life people aren't like that you know like in real life uh it, i can have conversations with people and i can even have dangerous conversations with people um but on twitter it's just a different you know on 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 these kinds of very visible social media forms it's a very different thing um well i try to I the way that I engage with my Twitter honestly it's less of a self-expression uh, vehicle as I think it might be for other people um, because I am an activist I kind of balance that I have work to do and Twitter is part of my work and I see myself as somebody who's working to create a better dialogue and working actively to be a better force in in you know our, our you know public discussions about about difficult topics. And that means that, unfortunately, I cannot express myself 100% the way that I want to. So if somebody's being an asshole to me, um, I might want to say <laughs> something or a few words to them, but um, that I have to, I have to resist because if we want something, if we want this to change, it has to be more than just um, uh, this immediate, thoughtless, um, extreme way of just raging at somebody that you don't even know, whose face you can't see. You can't see how much you've hurt them. You can't see what you've done to them. Uh, it just becomes this exercise of of uh, cruelty, fighting with cruelty, and then each of them just bouncing off each other to create this um, kind of dumpster fire that, that Twitter is. So wait, hold on. If I heard you correctly, it's because you're, of your job that you have the restraint so in other words, for me, I need to just be like, hey, you're a professional dude, like uh, you're a professor, uh, you know, react with less emotion, you know, see this as a mission. I mean, well, yeah, help? yeah. So I, I see t I see trying to create a better dialogue in general as part of my job. Um, and that's 
partially why I engage on Twitter the way that I the way that I engage because I, I do want to be somebody who actively makes things a little bit better. Um, I don't know if you know. Thank you for your compliments of <laughs> of, of my my Twitter presence, but it's um, a very uh, it's a it's a tough <laughs> trying <laughs> platform. I mean, keep in mind that being like the calmest, most reasonable person on Twitter, it's sort of like being the world's tallest midget, yeah. right? <laughs> it's not a huge compliment. Yeah. 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 Um, well, that's interesting because, I mean, I cannot tell you how many Twitter, you know, uh, posts I delete uh, because I write them like, you know, just, you know, enraged or... Or actually, sometimes I just write them because I'm, I'm like, I see something that I think is stupid and I want to call out the stupidity. But, you know, I, I did this thing, Yoel. You'll be proud of me, Yoel. Um, I, I, for, for a day. It only lasted a day, mind you. I'm like, you know, I'm only going to tweet things that are positive. So uh, if I see something stupid, I'm going to reframe it in a positive way. Like, look what we can learn here or um, something like that. And I felt so good about myself for a day. <laughs> and the next day I just called, you know, I, I just kind of started calling that, that person stupid. There, there's something really about the mechanics of Twitter, that something about the options that we have that make this kind of um, this conversation maybe more difficult than it needs to be or a polite civil conversation more difficult than it needs to be. Um, but I've, I've noticed that snark in particular makes things extremely hard. And um, one thing that I've done on Twitter is to not retweet or like any snarky posts, even if I love them, even if I really like what it's saying, um, even if I you know agree entirely <laughs> that don't retweet it, don't like it. And this means that I find myself accidentally liking and retweeting <laughs> things and then unretweeting and unliking them. I think that's helped. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's a good rule. I, you know, I, I was talking to a friend about the the likes, which is like, why do why do those exist even? Um, they don't really have a strong reason for being there, except that it makes Twitter more addictive for Twitter users, right? Like it's another reason to check. It's another ping to your phone. It's another little dopamine hit when you see somebody has liked your post. But yeah, I think the toxicity comes from the public aspect of it. The fact that obviously we don't see the other person and that we have a very kind of small amount of space in which to express ourselves, right? Um, those just add up to they're just like this perfect storm of um, transforming adults into their worst possible selves. Right. And I liked what I think I've heard Jack say this, um, the CEO of Twitter on some somebody's podcast. I think it was either Joe Rogan or Sam Harris's podcast where he said that they were thinking about adding a button that said thanks. You know, so there's like there's retweet and there's thanks. And thanks would give you the option of, you know, also saying, well, this made me think. You know, and I, maybe I don't agree 100 percent, but this made me think. And I think, you know, the current options, there really is nothing for that. There's just I agree with this message or I agree with it so much that I'll share it with all of my followers. But there's very much there's very few that is like, OK, well, this was interesting. This was thoughtful. Um, and I didn't agree entirely, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, not a snowball's chance in hell, man. Yeah. Never. <laughs> never. Yeah. Um, so I, I know we're running out of time, Sarah, and you've been super generous, but I, I want to just kind of ask one last question, maybe like a, a public service announcement a little bit. Um, so Yoel and I both work at the University of Toronto Scarborough, um, and uh, I, I think you visited Toronto. It's an incredibly diverse city, people from all over the world, um, and our campus uh, specifically is incredibly diverse. Um, so we've got... Um, a very, very large South Asian community and a very large uh, Middle Eastern community. So many uh, visible Muslims and I'm sure non-visible Muslims too. And I know for a fact uh, from speaking to um, people who work in student services that, you know, some of our students struggle um, with the issues of, you know, pressures between uh, their you know, their family's culture, the religious culture, and, you know, the culture of their, you know, adopted home. Um, and, 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 you know, many of them struggle. So, you know, as a parting remark, I wonder if you can, what, what can we tell students like this? What, what advice can we give them? Uh, what resources can we uh, direct them towards? Well, I mean, I guess it, it, it not to, not to be um, too general, but it, it does depend a lot on what the student is struggling with. 
Um, but this is such a common, this is such a common um, problem, uh, especially people who grow up in either they themselves are immigrants or their parents are immigrants and their children of immigrants who themselves are raising their children in a way that's very different than their culture around them. Um, uh, I guess for advice, um, I, I don't really have so much specific advice for these for these students, but to, but to say that if you can be in their lives and uh, be a source of knowledge, um, a place where they can get an honest uh, and sincere dialogue, I know that that was something that I craved um, as uh, as somebody who was just starting to think about things and just starting to question, um, because I felt like you know within my home community there was there was a lot of things that I was taught that weren't really that weren't. Uh, true, and I wasn't really encouraged to think about uh, things from outside that perspective. So the few people that I had in my life, um, especially as you know, as I grew older and I made relationships with teachers and I had relationships with my professors, um, I really, really valued um, the ones who would compassionately, but um, but deliberately question, help me question um, the the things that I that I had learned and to present to me different ways of being in different ways of thinking. And that was just so invaluable to me. Well, thanks so much for that. And I will, we will post as well uh, information to uh, EXMNA uh, for anyone who's interested uh, so they can find you easily. Um, but I think with that, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Uh, I'm done my beer. Uh, UL, uh, UL have, you, have you finished your two beers? No, I'm at like beer and a half. But I bet I'm still I I'm still ahead of Sarah though I bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, Definitely. for once, for once, I'm not the person who drank the least beer. You know, this is a big thing for me in in the history of this show. Thanks so much for joining us, Sarah. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.